for Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, Georgia saw a major spike in COVID-19 cases in the summer. There's no guarantee that won't happen again. That peak in the summer did not correspond to somehow passing a herd immunity threshold where now all of a sudden we're safe. Joshua White, who studies how viruses transform human health at Georgia Tech, joins me to discuss how to calculate your risk to exposure to the coronavirus as cases surge in Georgia and across the U.S. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. What's the risk of being exposed to the coronavirus at a 10-person holiday dinner party? How about a 10,000-person sporting event? Well, Joshua Whites and colleagues from Georgia Tech have built a tool to help quantify that risk. He's with me now to discuss it and what he makes of the current state of the COVID-19 pandemic in Georgia. Joshua, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Let's start with this tool. Kind of top line, what does the tool do? What do you hope people use it for? What this COVID-19 event risk assessment planning tool does is estimate the risk that one or more individuals may have COVID-19 in events of different sizes at counties throughout the United States updated in real time daily. So in effect, people can go to the site, scan through, find their county, adjacent county or somewhere in the United States and get a sense of the risk associated with an event of size 10, 15, 20, et cetera. And our hope is that in doing so, they can A, understand the real significant risk of exposure, as well as take steps to make sure in the event that someone may be an event of that size, that one case doesn't become many. I imagine there's a lot of math behind a tool like this, a lot of data behind it. Dig into that a little bit for me, if you can. Where are y'all getting the information that you use to kind of make this risk assessment? There is some math, but I think it's accessible. And it really is a matter of trying to take information that was already out there, aggregated by the New York Times and the Atlantic, which themselves aggregate information from state and county uh, departments of public health. And our central idea is to go from new cases reported on a daily basis to an estimate of, in some sense, the prevalence, how many folks may infected. And to do that, we take the last 10 days of cases 
and we use in some sense an ascertainment bias, the notion that there's an underreporting, underdocumentation of cases. And when we take that number, we have a sense of the per capita risk, the chance that one person in a crowd might have it. And to go from that and via the math, as you said, is simply a mechanism of us, in some sense, flipping coins for you. So we are taking that per capita risk, and maybe that's one in 200, but once you gather 20 or 40 or 50 people together, the odds that all of those people do not have COVID goes down, and the odds that one or more may have COVID goes up. And that's precisely what you see when you look at this map. One thing that we have heard a lot recently is warnings from public health officials about the risks associated with travel. Travel is not only a risk to you, an individual, because you might be exposed along the way, but you might also bring coronavirus to a community where it's not so prevalent. Does y'all's model account for movement? I mean, we're talking about the holidays when people travel. So, so how do y'all factor in that variable? We are making these estimates at a county level. And let's kind of unpack a little bit about the concerns of travel, precisely because you may be going to an area of higher circulating spread or coming from an area of higher circulating spread. And keep in mind, of course, the real high risk, I think, associated often with travel is what happens when you get to that destination, because people often travel to stay with other individuals for extended periods of time in an indoor context. And I think that is precisely where we're worried when folks gather indoors without masks for extended periods and haven't previously quarantined or isolated, that's that chance that there could be a a new chain of transmission that gets started. With respect to the website, one of the things we've been hoping to add is to include multiple zip codes together, and we're hoping to release that soon, where then you can address the issue I think that you've just raised. What happens when individuals from different areas come together and what's that aggregated with us? I think this pandemic has shown us in so many ways that people aren't good at assessing risk generally, and that tools like this, we hope, can really put concrete numbers on it. So just reflect on that for me, if you could. First of all, because this is a novel infectious disease, we had a lot of uncertainties from the outset. But even once we get a better understanding of the context and situations that may lead to an increased spread, it is then hard to go and translate statistics and case documentation that are being reported, things like cases per 100,000 or positivity, which we may not have an intuitive idea of what that means in our lived experience. So from early on in this year, and the early version of what you see now on the site was developed by me back in March, is meant to relate and essentially translate documented case reports to something that is more intuitive, tangible, relates to a lived experience. And yes, I think we do need to do a better job of communicating with the caveat that there are uncertainties here. So we recognize that even these estimates themselves have some uncertainty to them, but nonetheless, there's a problem with not communicating them either. So we try to be transparent about the assumptions going in and also direct and transparent about what we hope people take away when using the site. I want to talk a little bit about the kinds of events that y'all let people create here with this model. We, we think of maybe the risks of transmission associated with going to a large sporting event where you're around tens of thousands of people. There's also been a lot of attention paid to the risk of smaller gatherings, 10 people or less for spreading the coronavirus. Talk to me about the different risks associated with both those small and, and large events. Let's first talk about what this model does and doesn't do. And what it does is say the odds that one or more individuals may have COVID-19 in events of different sizes. 
that is not the same as the risk that you will get infected with coronavirus at an event of that size. Those are two different things. And you've given this nice example of a group of 10 or 10,000. Once we get into groups of that large of 10,000, we get in most places in the United States, I'd say almost certainly that one or more individuals in that group and probably many more in a group of that size may be infected. But then the risk of transmission is really the next step. So we've tried to focus in on the potential risk of exposure in order to begin that process of getting people to be more informed and take steps like mask wearing, distancing and gathering outdoors. So for example, if 10,000 people were distributed but were outdoors wearing masks at distance, there'd probably be very little chance that anyone would have been infected. Whereas when 10 people get together indoors without masks, those smaller events can in fact accelerate transmission precisely when these other factors line up. Mask wearing safer than not mask wearing, gathering outdoors safer than gathering indoors, being six feet or more apart as a guideline, obviously safer than being closer. So those other factors really then become that next step going from the exposure risk to the odds, in fact, of transmission somewhere in that group. For weeks now, we've seen cases surge across parts of the country that previously hadn't seen large spikes in cases. Now here in Georgia, you know, we had our spike in late summer and we've reached levels of infection that we saw in late July and and into August. So what do you make of, of the trajectory of the pandemic in the state? So we have to keep in mind that there's not an epidemiological rule that says there must be one peak in an epidemic because that peak in the summer did not correspond to somehow passing a herd immunity threshold where now all of a sudden we're safe. In fact, this was driven, uh, as we uh, suspect, by changes in the way people behave in terms of gathering sizes, distancing. So the risk though, of course, is if we revert behavior, increase activities, gather together, there's a chance for another increase. And of course, it is hard to look across time because there have been variations in levels of testing. Some would say, this is just more cases, but we're testing more. First of all, testing more leads to more documented cases in the near term, but hopefully fewer actual cases in the long term because you can identify people and hopefully find their contacts and have fewer onwards transmission. But if we look at hospitalizations, we look at fatalities, there is obviously a significant increase in many parts of the United States. And that is not a case issue. This is individuals with cases come hospitalizations, with hospitalizations come severe illnesses, including fatalities. So yes, we are facing yet another dangerous phase in this epidemic spread right at the time when there is some good news vis-a-vis uh, the arrival of vaccines. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Joshua Weitz from Georgia Tech. We're discussing a tool he's helped build to help people calculate their COVID exposure risk and what he makes of the current state of the pandemic. We've seen across the country states that maybe were previously hesitant to, say, impose statewide mask ordinances or further lockdowns to actually come around to doing those things. What kind of impact could a measure like, I don't know, closing bars and restaurants or putting a statewide mask order in place, 
What kind of impact do you think those kinds of measures could, could have, especially as we go into the colder months, as we go into a surge now that's that's larger than what we saw in the summer? So first of all, there are some things that are clearly possible to implement. And then in fact, in some places in this state, there is a mass mandate. Collectively, this is a public health emergency. And a mass should be a nonpartisan, universal approach to trying to make all of us safer. The other approach that could have a major impact is more testing. More testing leads to more documented cases in the near term, but fewer actual cases in the long term. And what do I mean by that? At Georgia Tech, we've implemented a large-scale surveillance testing program where students, staff, and faculty can go and you spit into this little cup and your results are returned typically 24 to 36 hours later. And this has helped identify individuals who may be asymptomatically or presymptomatically infected, but by knowing that they're not gonna circulate and end up traveling to someone's home or hanging out with more friends or being next to potentially a vulnerable staff or faculty member and then transmitting onwards, COVID-19, making it ever harder to stop. So those are two initiatives that we've known about for a very long time. And I know there's talk about sort of one option or the other, we need to open all up or lock it all down. Those are false dichotomies. There are more targeted approaches that should have been implemented already at large scale. Mask wearing and testing are two. We needed it yesterday, we need it today, we're gonna need it tomorrow and for many months because the vaccines are not going to appear all at once and we're not going to have mass vaccination all at once. We need to continue to use these other measures. I wonder if the real challenge is that people expect quick results. If we want to think about a vaccine which is being rolled out in limited uh, doses now first or maybe something like a statewide mask mandate, how long should people expect to wait before they start to see the appreciable effects of that? I, I, I kind of think that people are looking for, for quick results and maybe that's a false expectation. Keep in mind that a system already has some momentum. If today there was a mass mandate in the state, that doesn't stop infections that have already begun. So that flow through, unfortunately, of cases to hospitalizations, and in some cases to fatalities, we're still going to see that accumulation of the impacts of COVID-19, even if we're reducing new transmission. And so when one looks forward in time, one has to be patient at least on the timescale of a month to begin to see the impacts all the way uh, to fatalities and maybe a few weeks on the, uh, to hospitalizations, but it also takes time to implement. So I think it will take some time, but we already have enough data to understand that mask wearing is helpful, both comparing uh, places that have used mandates versus others, direct evidence that mask wearing can reduce the risk of infection. This is something that should be possible. There's a wide understanding, and I think the public gets this by this point, the vaccines are going to be rolled out to limited populations at first. There is a finite amount of doses. At what point do you expect people should start to expect to see the impacts of, of the vaccine in slowing transmission? It's really about the vaccination program. How many people? Over what time scale? In order to make the kind of impact that we think is necessary, 
obviously every bit of vaccination helps and we don't have to have 100% vaccination throughout the United States in order to have it very unlikely for there to be large scale spread, the kind of epidemic spread that we see. That's the whole notion of herd immunity. Nonetheless, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. And so that also means, even though many people have been infected, you want to have everyone, irrespective even if they have been infected before, to get the vaccine. So we're talking about things that will take many, many months to get to the point where we have large-scale penetration of this vaccine throughout the United States population or in a particular state like Georgia. So in months we're talking about Sam, which means we have to not give up on these other things. These things work together. We can't just think vaccines are on the way. I can stop wearing my mask and I don't have to worry about viral testing. We do that, we're, we're going to go through a pretty bad phase before people get vaccinated. If wearing masks has become such a political issue, if, you know, closing bars and restaurants is something that's seen as politically unpopular to certain people, how does vaccination escape that? I think that's going to require a concerted effort. And the bulk of that effort will fall on the new Biden administration, but also going much broader than that to connect to people of different ages, backgrounds, people who speak different languages, to get the word out of the collective value, both individually and collectively, of getting vaccinated. So my hope, obviously, is that this is going to be something that as people get vaccinated, that becomes the best advertisement. If we start to see the impacts in long-term care facility and first responders, and if you look at the difference between the placebo arm Uh, those who didn't get the vaccine and the vaccine in terms of cumulative infections, it's remarkable. And so that is the kind of evidence as it spreads out that I hope will then spread. People realize, okay, it wasn't that bad. And now I, uh, those around me, I'm not getting COVID and statistics will start to uh, get pushed out vis-a-vis the efficacy. And that will hopefully build to something where as the hundreds of millions of doses that are needed become available in logistics and supply chains, that the support for it will also go. But until then, we still are going to be living with this risk for months. There's two levels. At some level, yes, for many months. But B, vaccines will make things better along the way. Because for every person that gets vaccinated, that's one step in the chain where the virus potentially can't hop along. Now, there are still some questions vis-a-vis the efficacy of the vaccine with respect to severe infection versus asymptomatic infections and infectiousness. Those are real questions. They need to be addressed. We'll learn more in the process. Nonetheless, the hope here is that this will become gradually better and then at some point, hopefully, markedly better as a combination of mask wearing, testing, and ultimately vaccines can keep us collectively safer. Is there an analogy that you think of about how the end of this is going to feel like? The, the one that I've heard used kind of as a, as a counterexample is that the end of this pandemic is not going to feel like a switch is flipped. If it doesn't feel like that, what do you think this will feel like? I think it's going to shift gradually. It's not as if today versus tomorrow will be markedly different. My hope is the vaccines will make this gradually get better 
and the faster that the vaccine logistic and supply chain is then used to get more and more people, meaning the hundreds of millions of people who need to be vaccinated, when that actually happens, that is going to then lead to something where if we look a year from now versus now, and hopefully even three months from now, we'll see improvements, particularly in high-risk people. And I would say six months from now, I hope that we're beginning to see large-scale impacts that people, healthy individuals, younger ages who are not necessarily at high risk, we're beginning to see those individuals get vaccinated, which means they have a reduced chance, A, of having a severe infection, but hopefully reduced chance of, of passing on to others. And then we start to see really these large-scale population effects, not just specific benefits to high-risk individuals, but large-scale, which is terrific, but large-scale benefits of the kind that ultimately, my hope, we began this conversation talking about this risk tool, is that fewer people visit this risk tool because vaccines, mask wearing, information, the awareness that I hope this risk tool has in some sense enabled, all of those collectively have reduced the risk so that people need to visit the site. I think that would be a much better situation. Joshua White studies how viruses transform human health at Georgia Tech. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps others find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.